enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. We welcome you to join us in a study of God's Word today. May God open your heart and mind as you listen to the eternal truths found in His Word. From a very early age, I was fascinated with ancient Greek and Roman history. When I was in elementary school, we got to go to the libraries. I would bring those stories home with me, and I was fascinated to learn about those. Their myths, their stories, their history. That was just exciting and eager for me. I remember my excitement my freshman year of high school, being able to take a kind of elective class specifically about that time period and loving it. I just, I just, I just fell in love with those stories and what was happening there. I mean, and I'm not the only one. A lot of people have kind of paid attention to those kind of stories. W- William Shakespeare wrote all about Julius Caesar and uh, his life and his death and his time. Elizabeth Taylor made famous the story of Cleopatra, that uh, Egyptian of wonderful beauty who caused a, a war between nations. Uh, uh, and uh, we heard, uh, and Alexander the Great uh, is a name that even if we don't know the fullness of his story, we know he conquered many realms and, and uh, just, just amazing history. My son Alex, he has heard that name numbers of times since he was a little, little kid. Whenever he would do something, it just blew our mind. That was more than we thought he'd do. We call him Alexander the Great. And so like that's, that, that name has stuck. He may not know his entire history, but he knows he's a historical figure who's, who's done some amazingly uh, 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 things that no one ever imagined he'd be able to do during his time. And Alexander the Great, the one who, of course, spread Greek culture, language, and religion all through the known world, from northern Africa to India of that time, all throughout uh, Europe, he, his realm was huge. Uh, and even before him, uh, the story of uh, the 300 Spartans, tough, uh, big people who, who just, by themselves, the 300 of them, kind of hold up on this mountain pass and stopped an invading army of Persians from ever coming in and taking over their city. This, this story, this, these stories just always fascinated me. And these stories always uh, speak to us about uh, kind of, you know, that the resilience and the might of those who are victorious and what they did to become victorious. And uh, oftentimes those histories are written by those who have succeeded. Uh, there's an old saying, history is written by the victors. Some have, a, have said Winston Churchill first said that, but I think it's, it's older than that. History is written by those who win because then they can elevate what they did to win. But the truth is that sometimes we get our history given to us. Every now and again we'll find somewhere where history is shown by those who have been defeated by those who aren't always victorious, and that history gives us its own perspective as well. In fact, in our scriptures, we find some history by those who have precisely been defeated. If you look at the book of Esther, it is the story of a girl who is living in a time when those same Persians who were defeated by the Spartans had conquered God's people. And Esther, in that story, she is forced to marry the king, who invades Greece. And, uh, and she is, is, has to do everything she can to save her people from annihilation. The story of Daniel. 
story that uh, we're going to read from in just a moment. His background, that story of Dan, the book is, indeed, Persia has control of God's people right now. I've told you before, there are different periods of exile we've talked about as we've gone through the Old Testament so far. The Babylonians were the last ones to take them over, and then the Persians took Babylon over. So that's kind of where we are in this story. And what Daniel has to struggle through in the early parts of his book is trying to be faithful to God, the God who has saved them and been with them and saved them from slavery before, and facing again and again directives that will tell him and enforce on him to try to denounce God, but instead he won't, and so he'll face the lion's den. You'll, you'll get stories in Daniel about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the ones who are thrown into the fiery furnace. You have stories, again, of them being faithful in the face of persecution. Daniel is a story that takes place there. But this story of Daniel uh, uh, also carries with it quite a bit of history, quite a bit of history about what takes place after that Persian kingdom. And Daniel chapter 11 is the most summarized historical view of what happens in some of that Greek history that I was so fond of as a child. Uh, those different uh, countries that, 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 that waged, uh, waged war against one another. In fact, if you were to take the story of Alexander the Great how he takes over the Persians, and then after he dies, his kingdom is split up into numerous other kingdoms because his generals now each get a piece of his land. You would find if you were, were to take that history and all the battles and all the different rulers who, who kind of stepped in as the next one passed away, and you were to take that history and read it side by side with Daniel chapter 11, you would find that they match quite well. That uh, from the perspective of Daniel, the perspective of those who are defeated people, just before Alexander the Great comes through, the Persians said to them, said to the Jewish people, hey, you can go back and rebuild your temple. We'll let you go back into your land. And that's the story in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they go back and they build their temple. Alexander the Great's going to swing through. He's going to let them keep worshiping their God. But that is the beginning of the Greek language starting to be solidified and why our New Testament is written in Greek. And then after Alexander the Great comes through, you have uh, uh, two kingdoms that are set up after he dies. Uh, one of his generals takes the northern kingdom, Syria, right just north of uh, Israel, and to the east, I think I'm doing that right. To me, it's my right hand, but I think for you, it's this way. And to the east and all of Persia is the Seleucid Empire. South of of, of the kingdom of Israel is the Ptolemies. Cleopatra will be the last one. I mentioned her earlier. The Ptolemies will uh, reign in Egypt and northern Africa, and they'll be south of, um, of their people. And, and so all of chapter 11 is just, just the story of the continued struggle and the different kings that are coming up. And Daniel does a, a wonderful just kind of summary of, of what happens. And if you were to take a history and read it alongside of it, you'd find it. And so we get to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. It's the beginning of, well, it's actually the second time it's used in the book of Daniel, this phrase that was used by Jesus in the Matthew passage that we just heard about an abomination. We'll talk about that, but I want to read for you today from Daniel chapter 11. I'm actually going to start at verse 31, and I'm going to read through the end. And when I do this, I want to, I want to ask that you hear, like, like step back as you hear it. There'll be moments when you say, wait, what? What does that mean? 
Just hear it for everything it has to say as this story moves from talking about what has happened in their midst, what's happened in their time, to what they're dreaming and thinking about in the future. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 says this, Forces sent by him shall occupy, profane the temple and the fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall give understanding to many for some days. However, they shall fall by sword and flame, suffer captivity and plunder. And when they fall victim, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join them insincerely. Some of the wise shall fall so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end. For there is still an interval until the time appointed. The king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself, consider himself greater than any god, shall speak horrendous things against the God of gods, and he shall prosper until the period of wrath is completed, for what is determined shall be done. He shall pay no respect to the gods of his ancestor or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no respect to any other god, for he shall consider himself greater than all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his ancestors did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall make more wealthy and shall appoint them as rulers over many and shall distribute the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall advance against countries and pass through like a flood. He shall come into the beautiful land and tens of thousands shall fall victim. But Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites shall escape from his power. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the riches of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow in his train. But reports from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he'll go out with great fury to bring ruin and complete destruction to many. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. At that time, Michael, the great prince, The protector of your people shall arise, and there shall be a time of anguish such as never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt." Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who... Uh, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the word secret, and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth, and evil shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and two others appeared, one standing on this bank of the stream and one on the other. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was upstream, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? 
The man clothed in linen who was upstream raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by the one who lives forever that it would be for a time, two times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be accomplished. I heard but could not understand, so I said, My Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that desolates is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Happier are those who persevere and attain the 1,335 days. But you, go your way and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. This is a fabulous piece of scripture that's hard in many ways to look at and to read and be like, okay, what is, where's Daniel going with this? Where we find ourselves in this story is that Daniel has started to write this for the people of God who have experienced the abomination that desolates. You see, right around 165 AD, something happens. That northern kingdom, the, the Seleucids, from one of Alexander's generals in his line, they, they kept having conflicts with the nations around them and with, as it said, the kingdom of the south, Egypt, and started to have conflicts with them. And so there was this one ruler, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and that's quite a mouthful, like try to say that five times fast. But Antiochus Epiphanes is the ruler at this time, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to go test their military might. I'm going to go see if, uh, you know, that current ruler is just kind of laxed on his... uh, uh, on his defensive. If so, maybe I'll be the next Alexander the Great. And so he moves his, his armies down. Because the problem, of course, between where Syria is, where the Seleucids are, I'm sorry, I keep going to the right for you, it's my left, uh, uh, and in the rest of Persia, going down then to, uh, I guess it's this way, to Africa, uh, for him to go through, there's one nation right in the middle. And that is the people of God. They are kind of this buffer zone between the people he wants to war. And so he goes down, and he knows to bring his armies down, he needs a place for them to shelter. He needs a place for them to set up camp and to have a base. Well, Jerusalem is the largest city in that area. And there is a place in Jerusalem that is like a fortress. That would be a great place, a beautiful place, to house uh, all of his officers, to house his soldiers, That place is the temple of the Lord. And so he does that. And of course, all of his nations in there, his soldiers, his people are in there, and they want to make sure that they're ready for battle. So they do what a lot of people that time do, is they start worshiping their God and sacrificing to their God. And according to the story of Maccabees, which is a story you'll find in your Catholic friends' Bibles, it's a story that we don't consider Holy Scripture, but one that still records a bit of the history. What happens is he sacrifices a pig, an animal that is unclean. In the Old Testament, it was one of the animals they weren't supposed to eat. They sacrifice a very unclean animal to Zeus, to a different god. It is the worst of the worst. It is, is, hey, wait, wait. This is where we worship. This is where we worship the Lord, and you're sacrificing to Zeus. It would be like if I said we have a guest speaker today, and the guest speaker was a worshiper of Satan. You'd be like, wait, what? 
What? That can't happen in this church. Like, this is the worst thing. This is an abomination that destroys, that desolates everything. And they're absolutely livid that this is happening. In fact, there's a little bit of a revolt. In fact, even what we read said some are going to take action, but those who aren't loyal to the covenants, well, they're going to go along with it. Basically, he's saying those who aren't committed to God and the covenant he's made with them to be their God and them to be this people, they start to go along with it. But there will be an uprising and there will be some uh, disagreement fighting over this. And so this story, this part of Daniel, this history that leads up to this is leading up to this very moment where the audience for Daniel are these people who are saying, this guy has come in. He's taking over our land. Our land is going to be a battleground between two much bigger nations, and we're, we're just going to be rubble. We are just going to, be, uh, we're going to be wiped out when these two nations come colliding in, and in the meanwhile, they're camping out and absolutely desecrating our most holy place. This is the story of Daniel chapter 11. But Daniel chapter 11 starts to shift. It starts to go from history to what in uh, Jewish literature is called apocalypse. It starts to move from here's what's happened to here's what we anticipate. Now, apocalypse is an interesting word. A lot of times when we hear the word apocalypse today, we think something terrible is about to happen. And sometimes that is the case. There is some warning here in Daniel 12 too. But apocalypse for them is a theological imagination of what will happen in the future. It is, we want to tell a story about what is going to happen, but it is theologically grounded in God's promises and God's hope. We have some example of the apocalyptic genre today, uh, not, not grounded in theological hope, but this, this idea of an imagined future. And so uh, you might uh, you know, hear a story or watch a movie about a normal history, a normal development. It's just like things are today. But then lo and behold, someone invents you know, a, uh, a computer program that becomes self-aware called Skynet. And then there's robots called Terminators destroying people. And you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Or, or maybe it's a different story, normal history, everything's going normal, somebody gets sick, that person bites somebody, that person bites somebody else, and before you know it, there's a zombie apocalypse, right? That's, that's the word. And so, like, um, it is, it's, everything's perfectly historical, and then there's an imagined future. And that is what apocalyptic literature is for the Jewish people too, except the difference is this. Instead of just imagining an end or imagining a future, it is, it is all grounded in the promise of God. It is all grounded in their hope of what God has promised to his people. And so Daniel starts to move in that direction. And so he starts to say, hey, here is Antiochus Epiphanes and his, his, his soldiers here in our nation, and they have set up camp, and it is terrible. And he starts to imagine, but what if things get worse? And he goes to Egypt, and he actually defeats them. And he gets all their wealth. And he gets everything that they have. What happens then? Well, sooner or later, he's going to realize he does have to go home, because if all his army's down there, he can't protect what's there, and so he's going to have to worry about other armies. And even there, Daniel says, and, and even his reign's going to come to an end. Someday he's going to die, and there's not going to be anyone there to help him. And so he says to the group there, he says, hey, if you can't imagine anything but destruction here, I want you to know that even the worst in this world has 
an expiration date. Even the worst in this world has a moment where it, it has to pass. And so, he, so Daniel 11 talks about this ruler who, who inevitably is also going to fall. But they can't imagine anything but his victory. They can't imagine anything but that because they are telling history from those of the defeated, from those who have said, hey, we've been conquered and we can't imagine anything else. And I think sometimes in our life as Christians, something happens. We get some news. Something happens in our life. Something happens. Someone in our family or friend. And all of a sudden, everything we imagined of what is going to happen next comes crashing down. And all of a sudden, we can't imagine anything else but the continued decline and crashing because of what we've received or what has happened to us. Sometimes we can't imagine anything else but the victory of sin in our life or the power of evil that somehow has infected our life, our families, our friends. And this is where I think sometimes reading these passages is helpful because a theological imagination that is grounded in the promise of God can be absolutely helpful when we can't see anything but the turmoil that has affected us. And Daniel reminds us that all that is wrong and all that is evil, even sin, is mortal and passes away, and God has a final world, a final word. And so the question, of course, then is, but what about the evils of this world? If this thing passes, what about the next thing? What about the evils of this age or the sins of the past or the fears of the present? Will those ever go away or will there always just be something new to replace it? And so he tells a story. He tells a story about an angel named Michael. Michael is, in the, in the, in the, in the kind of culture of the Jewish people, this, this angel that works is like the right hand of God that helps take care of evil in the world and, and enforces God's judgment on the world. And so he imagines, indeed, this angel that removes and takes away evil in the world, that, that, that indeed redeems and rescues their people in this great kind of cosmic scene. This is the theology of the apocalypse. This is apocalypse, which means literally an unveiling. It means that this is indeed the hope and the promise of what God wants to do for his people. Daniel 12 follows with the cosmic restoration of his people. This is the promise that sin and evil will ultimately be defeated. The story is told with Michael, this great prince or angel, who is indeed going to save everyone. And, and, and in this chapter, for the first time in the entire Old Testament, we have the explicit description of the promise of the resurrection. That the worst that can happen in this world does not have the last say, for God's grace will raise to everlasting life, the righteous, of the righteous in this world, those who follow God's covenant and stay committed to him. And as we look at this story, we start to find out indeed that there's a story of a couple people standing on the rivers. One is standing on one side and the other is standing uh, uh, on the river on the other side. Uh, upon the river is what one translation says, this one says upstream. Uh, I was reading from a different translation. I found myself just kind of liking the phrase, standing upon the river. I liked that one. Because we have to use, a, I think sometimes we can start to guess, well, who are these two people that he's talking about? 
Who are these? But I think if we use a little bit of our theological imagination, I think we know who these people are. One on the, on the bank of the river is saying, how long? How long? If Michael's going to come, if Eve is going to get taken care of, if the sin of this world is going to be taken care of, how much longer till it's fulfilled? I think we know who that person is. I think we've heard it before. That person is the student who's afraid to go to school because the bully is going to meet him there. That person is the spouse who's scared every time their husband comes home from work. That person who cries out, how long before these things fulfilled, is the addict who wonders, how much longer is this drug going to have control on my life? How long until these things are fulfilled is the person who just can't hold on to a job and and doesn't know how they're going to take care of themselves or their family or anyone else and just can't understand why, can't get it together and hold one down. This how long till things are fulfilled is the person who keeps getting sick and is too ill to be insured. I think that might be a somewhat out of date reference now. The one who's too ill to get out of debt. When the, and so this person who cries out, how much longer? We, we've heard these voices. These are, this is the cry of the people that Daniel was writing to who say, hey, I see the soldiers come in. How much longer? And we know that voice. We've heard it among people that we know. Perhaps it has been our voice. And the one who's upon the river, maybe upstream, Maybe over the river. Maybe walking on the river. I don't know. When I use my theological imagination, I imagine the one who has power over the river. The one who can part that which gets in our way. And that one says, when the power of the holy people has been shattered, these things will be completed. In other words, things aren't looking good. It seems like things are still continuing. Now, that's not what we want to hear. That's not usually the good news that we hear in Scripture or want to hear in Scripture. But for a people in 165 AD who are like, the future doesn't look brighter, this person's telling them exactly all the fears that they have. And sometimes we're in the very midst of the worst that can happen. Things don't look much brighter. But yet, the question is, is there still something left to see in Daniel chapter 12? I remember there were pastors um, uh, when I was growing up who, who would speak into my life. And I remember one phrase that uh, was repeated again and again. We have to, and the phrase was this, we have to allow our power to diminish and let God's power increase in our life. It was a phrase that was said again and again. Less of me, more of God. Let my power decrease so that God's power can increase. This is his way of saying that I don't want to get in the way of what God's going to do. And I don't know that necessarily that's what Daniel's saying here, but I find it still applicable in the way that sometimes in our life, when we wonder, okay, God, what happens next? We have to be fully open and willing to what God wants to do in our life and trust in His hope, trust in His promise that He will indeed see us through even if things take longer than we expected, even if God's timeline is longer than our timeline. In fact, this person on the shore says, wait, wait, but how long? 
How long? And, and, and the person on the other side says, well, it's going to be a time. And I imagine that person on the bank saying, it's been a time. And he says, well, it's going to be a few more. And the guy's like, well, it's been forever. To borrow a phrase from me, well, it might be forever and a half. <laughs> that's how it feels when things are the worst that it can be. And that's what Daniel says here. Hey, we don't know how long it's going to be. It's going to be a time, might be times, might be time and a half. And this is part of the prophetic word is sometimes things don't go the way as fast as we want them to go. But yet the word for God's people here is stay faithful because God is still involved and God is still working right now in your world and has a promise of hope and a promise of eternal life. A time indeed where those regular burnt offerings will come back to the temple is how Daniel ends. A time indeed where the worship of God is allowed and indeed takes place because God has removed evil for good. I think sometimes when we read this story, we get tied up in the details. I asked you when I read the story to try to, try to catch the feel of it. We catch indeed the sense of urging, the sense of oh no, but also this sense of God is here and happy are those who persevere and wait and, and get to the end of these days. And I think we can spend a lot of time talking about those days, a lot of time talking about those people, a lot of time talking about all this, but my sermon would not only get a whole lot longer, but I think we'd do something to this passage if we did that. Remember eighth grade science class? You dig in deep and you, you, you try to study like a frog. You'd have to dissect it. you get to all the details, find all the parts, find all the pieces, see how they connected, and you would do that kind of work. Well, something happens when you have to dissect something, right? You have to kill it. <laughs> and there's a part of me that can't help but think, the more sometimes we do that, the more we kind of kill the hope of the passage. In fact, there are a lot of people who treat apocalyptic literature not as the theological imagination of hope and promise that God has, but kind of this, this timetable that if we can only just kind of piece the pieces together like a puzzle... We got this. And so they study each and every piece. Well, we're going to figure out who this is. So in the Cold War, the Army of the North had nothing at all to do with the people of Daniel's time. It had everything to do with Russia. And so we would study all these little details, and we'd try to figure this out. Remember in the 80s, there was a book that came out. Or maybe it was the late 70s it came out. It was an 88-piece puzzle. 88 reasons why Jesus Christ is coming back in 1988. And so he, like, here it is. Here's one puzzle piece. Hey, look, I've studied it. I figured it out, and I found where it fits with this one. I found where it fits with this one. And now it creates a new kind of timeline of history. I, I, I prefer to think of um, the apocalyptic literature of our scriptures. Daniel, chapter 12, the book of Revelation, which we read uh, from earlier today. Uh, I prefer to look at it a little bit differently. When I was a freshman in college, I, was, um, I had to take, as part of the requirements of a liberal arts degree at Olivet Nazarene University, I had to take an introduction to fine arts, which was a class that talked about art, talked about architecture, and talked about kind of the development throughout the ages of this. But the, the class ended with us going to the art museum in Chicago. And this teacher would be our own tour guide. In fact, it's kind of funny. He would often, as he was giving us tours, 
inevitably draw people from their official tour guides because they wanted to follow him because he had better information. But, um, but he, would, he would take us there. And I remember, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this, this name because I don't speak French, but uh, there, one, of the, one of the pieces of art that I saw was a, 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 this beautiful piece of pointillism. Pointillism is artwork that's made with little dots on the art. And so there's a guy named uh, George Surratt who did a, su- a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday on Le Grand Jot. I don't know how to say that. But, uh, but anyway, this is this beautiful picture of people just kind of sprawled out on the grass and in the shades of the trees and, and having their picnic. And it's this glorious picture. You walk into the room and you see this. And it's this masterpiece of, of pointers, just dots. And so like the grass is just like green dots, one after the other. It's not brush strokes. Every little piece of paint on that is a dot. And then when he got to the trees, he turned to brown colors. And when he got to the people, he turned to the different colors that would make up their dress or their outfit. And it was all just dots. And when you walk into the room, you'd see it. And indeed, it looked, looked amazing. And the detail was, was, was just, just outstanding. But as you would get closer, and I did this, of course, I got my face as close to it as I could possibly get And all I saw were those dots. And I could have, if I wanted to, studied that so closely and known the tint and the hue and the shade of each of those colors, of each of those dots. And I could have seen how closely he put them and overlapped them and how he did that. And I would have missed the whole picture because I would have zoomed in far too much. It's like like an old dot matrix printer. You get your magnifying glass out, and you look at the dots that make up the letter I. But you'll miss the whole sentence. And I think sometimes that happens with the way that we approach apocalyptic literature. And I think we need to let its imagination continue to speak in our life. And I think sometimes what happens in our life is we do that with the trials as well. We do that with the sins. We do that with uh, uh, the struggles that we have. We kind of hone in on it. And we say, well, why'd that happen? And what in the world's going on here? And, and, we, and, and we so become just zoned in, microscopic focused on what's going wrong that we can't imagine a way out. That we can't imagine that there's anything good that can possibly happen despite whatever that bad thing is that we've zeroed in on. And what Daniel chapter 12 does and what apocalyptic, lit, apocalyptic literature does for us is it, is it forces the people of God to say, hey, let's widen our glance for a moment and let's see that indeed there is a God who can still work in the midst of this even if it takes longer than anticipated, even if it plays out to the worst it could possibly play out. Know this promise nonetheless. That which we tend to zone in on that isn't working right, that too is temporary. There's a God who has a plan and a future and will indeed remove for all eternity that which destroys people, that which hangs them up, that which is a stumbling block for them. And know that our God still redeems conquered, broken, defeated people. This is the story of Daniel. This is a story from a perspective of one who says, hey, Victor didn't write this history, but nonetheless, I'm going to write about one who has victory over our history.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for uh, this promise in Daniel that you are the God who still loves and dwells with your people. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come here on a Sunday and any single time we come, we can say, Lord, here's what's going on and we can release it to you. And know that in that moment, we are stepping back and say, hey, I don't need to try to zone in and figure out meaning in something that is so painful or hurtful or uncertain. But Heavenly Father, we come here today to worship you because you are the one who brings meaning to our life. And you are the one who gives us a future and a hope. And so, Heavenly Father, today, I pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit in each and every one of our lives. That, Lord, where we have great hope and great joy, help us, Heavenly Father, to share that with those around us. But, Lord, where we have encountered someone who's just making a mess of their lives, or we can encounter something that has just uh, uh, affected us in a deep way, or, or, Lord, perhaps we have messed up in some way, we're like, oh, no, what now? That, Lord, perhaps you would help us today to step back and say, You are at work now, and you will be fighting for us for all eternity, and you will make sure that we have a future with you. And I thank you for that promise. I thank you that that promise is indeed shared and made available to all who trust in you, believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, for their salvation. And so, Lord, today, we pray that uh, you would overcome that which gets in the way of our worship, the abominations of sin and evil that exist in our lives and in our world. And Lord, would you reign and make us worthy of the resurrection you have promised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. Our website also includes instructions for subscribing to our podcast so you can have a message delivered to you weekly. May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him today.